When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and didn't help you? He replied, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. As far as extreme weather events go, we don't have it so bad here in Rhode Island. I know it's cold the, the past couple days, but you can't really complain too much. Uh, sometimes we get a bad snowstorm, but the fact that you have to go back to 1976 to find an iconically terrible storm, I think, says something. Major earthquakes, tornadoes, and hurricanes very rarely darken our doorstep. People who live in other places are not so fortunate. You'll remember the, how just this past fall we saw how badly the Fort Myers area of Florida was struck by Hurricane Ian. I think I got a picture of that right there. That's what it looks like. When a hurricane is barreling towards you, we all know that the safest thing to do is to get out of the way, to evacuate. The meteorologists sound the alarm and the state governments issue orders. Even so, some stay. While a number are fortunate to pass through with their lives, others die because they would not listen to all the warnings. It comes as no surprise that this stubbornness carries over to other areas of our lives. We ignore the doctor's guidance to change our diet and take our medicine, and we suffer a heart attack. We ignore the mechanic's advice to get something fixed and find ourselves broken down on the side of the road. We put off that termite treatment the exterminator recommended, and the house begins to collapse. We plug our ears and suffer the consequences. Now, when we lived a few years, we tend to gain some wisdom over those years. 
And so some of us now know better than to ignore those warnings. If we're wise, we would open our ears to hear what Jesus has to say about eternity. Many of us live in denial, but every person recognizes the brute fact that we do not live forever. All of us, each one of us, will die. Some will die after living into our 90s. Some of us will die in the prime of life. A distant cousin of mine, mine just died this week from an undetected pulmonary embolism. He was 49 years old, had a wife, four kids under 13. None of us know how long we will live. But we all know we will die. Now, if you're an atheist, that's the final word. And that's certainly very bleak and hopeless. But we know that there is a God. We see His fingerprints all over creation. And we see His glory reflected in our human brothers and sisters, as broken and messed up as we are. If we execute justice in this world, if we make each other answer for our crimes, we best believe that the God of the universe will do no less. In this world, some people do escape the justice system, but no one will escape God's judgment. We know this because the scriptures tell us that there's going to be a day when all the dead are raised and we will stand before God. And if you doubt that possibility, I would just direct you to the resurrection of Jesus, which has abundant evidence that should lead us to believe that he actually did rise from the dead. And I won't talk about that now. I'll talk about that on Easter. But there's reason to believe that happened. And so there's reason to believe that will happen to us too. This age will pass away and we will stand on the threshold of a new age. A world in which the earth has been renovated and restored. A world where we will no longer count our days because we will live forever. But not everyone will enter this age. Some will be turned away. And that's what we see in today's passage. Here in verses 31 through 46 of Matthew 25. And you recall how we've just heard a series of parables from Jesus. Talking about masters coming home and calling their, his servants to account. About women preparing for a bridal party to come. Well now here in these verses... Jesus is done with the parables. He's now talking about what is actually going to happen. And so he zooms us into the future. He's indicated, as he's taught his disciples, that there is going to be a time that's going to pass before he comes again. And that we have to be prepared to wait. And probably the disciples themselves couldn't imagine it was going to be as long as it's been. But he told them. You've got to be prepared to wait. You've got to have extra oil ready for your lamps 
waiting for the bridegroom's party to come. And so that's the position that we find ourselves in. But now Jesus is talking about something that even lies beyond our days, something which is coming. The time when he comes in his glory, the Son of Man. When he says the Son of Man, he's referring to himself. And if you've been with us for, as we've been going through Matthew, I've referred back to Daniel 7 a few times about how that's prophetically significant. The Son of Man has messianic significance. So he's referring to himself, and he's saying that when he comes in his glory, with all the angels, it sits on his glorious throne, he's going to bring all people before him to be judged. We've heard this previously in Matthew 16, verse 27. He said there, For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. And this picture that Jesus is giving us of this glorious return with all of heaven to render judgment matches the prophecy that has been given in the Old Testament. You look to the book of Joel, Joel 3, verses 1 through 2, you jump down to verse 12, we see that Jesus is employing the very sort of imagery. It says there, In those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I, and notice who's talking here, it's God, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I'll put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. Let the nations be roused, let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. And then you look to the prophet Zechariah. And in Zechariah 14, this is talking about when God will descend upon the Mount of Olives. And there God says, You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So I, want to, I hope you're making a connection here as you're hearing these prophecies. Notice yet again what Jesus is indicating about himself. He's saying that he is the Lord God of Israel. Sometimes people ask, you know, where does Jesus say that he's God? He says it on pretty much every page of the Gospel because he makes these connections between the Old Testament and applies passages about God to himself. This is why he gets himself crucified because the religious leaders finally were like, hey, wait a minute. And he's like, this guy's claiming to be God. And uh, they, they thought he was lying, but he showed them otherwise. But that's what Jesus is claiming here. And so... And he's claiming that he has that divine right to judge mankind. And Jesus does state this explicitly in the Gospel of John. John 5, verses 21 through 29. He talks about his relationship um, between himself and the Father. And he says this, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So the Father is life giver, the Son is life giver. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, 
that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged by his crossover from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So Jesus is saying this elsewhere, talking about not only his authority, but this whole situation that's going to be playing out at the end of the ages. And when that time comes, he says that humanity is going to be separated like in the way a shepherd separates his flock between the goats and the sheep. Now, for us, this is a little bit difficult to grasp because we don't really live in an agrarian society anymore, and we also don't live in Israel. And um, based on what I've heard, the goats and the sheep in Israel actually look very similar to each other. They're not as easy to distinguish as they are maybe over here in America. And so that kind of aptly describes the condition of humanity. Like it's tough for us to judge each other like because just based on appearance, we all look pretty much the same. But the judge knows. Jesus is going to know. He's going to be able to separate the sheep from the goats. And again, he's employing some Old Testament verbiage here. In Ezekiel 34, 17, Ezekiel writes this. He says, As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. And of course, we've seen Jesus elsewhere in Matthew talk about this sort of separation going on. In Matthew 13, he says, This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous. And he talks about the imagery of separating the wheat from the weeds and separating the good fish from the bad fish. And so now he, he's talking about sheeps and goats and separating them. Our burning question, of course, is what determines this separation? What makes you a sheep or a goat? Well, in verses 33 through 40, Jesus tells us what makes a person a sheep. He divides the sheep to go to the right, goats go to the left. And speaking to those on his right, the sheep, he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now let's key in on some of the words being used here. Jesus is saying that those who are the sheep are going to be receiving something that has already been prepared, that's been in the works from the very beginning of the creation of the world. Pretty profound. This isn't, God's not calling audibles here. When Adam and Eve sinned and 
you know, as, as things going along and saying, oh, I better put something together for, for my people. No, from the very beginning, God has had a plan. He's seen how everything was going to play out. And his intent all along was that the world would be saved through Jesus Christ and that he would make a people for himself and that that people would receive an inheritance. We see elsewhere in the New Testament being spoken about this preparation that, that God has made. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. When we look at Hebrews 11.16, and that's the whole record of all the faithful prophets, all the Old Testament saints who uh, came before Christ. It says also for them, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And we've heard previously what Jesus has told his disciples in speaking in parables. He says, I open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. All right, so God's prepared something. Well, what has he prepared for those who are his sheep? What has he prepared for his people? We have a picture of what he's prepared in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. There God tells the people of Israel, and we understand that in Christ, this promise becomes ours as well. He tells them this. He says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build their houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are speaking, I will hear. Preparation. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. And the lamb will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. So that's a lot of verses there, but I think it's important for that to be kind of the image that we have in our mind of what God has promised us. He's promising to restore all things. He's promising to restore this world, to restore our lives. And that when we imagine a world with peace and justice in it, when we imagine a world where the land is flourishing and there's joy on the face of the earth, that's what we're looking forward to. And that's what God has promised to all those who belong to Jesus. This, this picture that we have here in the Old Testament matches what Jesus has to say and what the apostles have to say. In Matthew 19.29, remember Jesus said this, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake 
will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Jesus is saying, don't worry about this world because you're going to inherit so much more in the age to come. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus addresses these kind of worries again. And he says to his disciples, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. God is going to give everything to us. And then what I love most, you know, you have that, that picture from Isaiah 65 in your mind. You go to the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, and it'd be worth reading the whole passage here, but I want to point out the connection here. Revelation 21, verse 1, notice how it begins the very same way as in Isaiah 65, where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And basically, the rest of the verses there talk about how everything that's been promised has come to fruition. And then in verse 7, thinking about inheritance, it says, Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So it's not just simply a material restoration. That's part of the happiness. That's part of the joy that we're going to experience. But it's a full relational restoration. We're going to be with God. We're going to be his children. And as it says in the verses that I didn't include here, he's going to dwell with us. He's going to make his home with us. So this is what the sheep are going to receive. This is why they're called blessed. But we still haven't answered the question, okay, well, what makes you a sheep? What's characteristic of sheep? Well, Jesus gets into that in verses 35 and 36. What's characteristic of sheep is that they welcomed Jesus. They fed him when he was hungry. They gave him water when he was thirsty. Clothed him when he was naked. Visited him in prison. Now, when we go down to verse 37... Those that Jesus is speaking to are really confused because they're, they're like, Lord, when did we see you? And this shows us that Jesus is not just talking to the people that he would see in his own time here on the face of the earth. But that this is looking forward beyond the lifetimes of the disciples to our own present day. And so he explains how it is that even today, you and I might feed Jesus, give Jesus a cup of water, might clothe him, might visit him in prison. He says in verse 40, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. What a profound notion that we could serve Christ in that sort of direct and intimate way by serving the least of these. Now, again, so we've just answered, okay, well, who are the sheep? It's those who serve the least of these, who take care of the least of these. But now we have to ask, well, who are the least of, the, of these? Because they're not just anyone. 
And they're not just the totality of those who are impoverished and downtrodden and all of that. The least of these are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to show this in a second, but I want to make clear that this does not mean that we do not care for the downtrodden. You'd be ignoring your Bible if you thought that. When we look in the Old Testament, Isaiah 58 and Ezekiel 18, it talks about how it's incumbent upon us that we care for those who are hungering, for the poor, how we're supposed to be clothing those who don't have clothes. And the book of James says, James 1.27, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So clearly, caring for those who are suffering just in general is important to God. And all of this just simply falls under the very basic command that Jesus says is basically 1B to the most important command. Remember in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 39, Jesus in answering this question, says this. He says, this is the question he received. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then you get to the 1B commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this command is, is being drawn from Leviticus 19.18. So before we even think about you know, well, you know, who the, who the least of these are and all that, we already understand that we're commanded to care for people just for the very basic reason that we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so with that foundation in mind, understanding we're not saying we're not supposed to care about that because we are. That's a basic foundational command, just as basic as loving God. We can now turn and drill a little bit more deeply into, well, who are, who is the de- what's the identity of these least of these? The least of these are the disciples of Jesus. And the reason why we can be confident in ident- identifying the least of these as the disciples is because of what Jesus says earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. You go to Matthew 10, verse 42. Jesus says, and if anyone gives even a cup of cold water, so again, similar imagery here of, you know, helping, satisfying someone's thirst, to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. So we notice the parallels of helping, taking care, and then also identifying the disciples as the little ones, which is a parallel sort of phrase for the least of these. When you go to Matthew 18, we see the same thing in verses 6, 10, and 14. Jesus says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, and who are the little ones? Those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the seas. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So the phrase, the least of these, is just a recasting of 
the sort of concept that Jesus has already been employing, the little ones. The idea that it's best to be, to be last than to be first. It's best to be little in the eyes of the world because in being little in the eyes of the world, you are great in the kingdom of God. This isn't the only indication that we have that the disciples are those who are the least of these. We also have that indication based on the fact that Jesus says uh, that whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. So there's an even closer connection there. Brothers and sisters of mine. And when we look at where Jesus, who Jesus says his brothers and sisters are, it's his disciples. Towards the end of the Gospels of Matthew and John, when Jesus has been raised from the dead, he tells uh, Mary to go and tell his brothers, talking about his disciples, to go to Galilee, that they'll see him there. In the epistles of Paul, in Romans 8, 29, it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And in Hebrews says, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, talking about the believers. And besides all of this, Jesus stated it pretty clearly in Matthew 12, 50. He says, forever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So based on the fact that the least of these language parallels the little one's language and the fact that those who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus are his disciples. We have every reason to believe he's talking about his disciples here and the way that they've been treated, the way that they've been received. So now maybe you're wondering, okay, maybe that's kind of skewed your, shifted kind of your whole understanding of this passage. Now you're wondering, okay, well, what does that look like practically then? For us to feed, clothe, take in, visit in prison those who are the least of these, those who are the disciples of Christ. Well, we get a great picture in 3 John, verses 1 through 1 8. And I think this is, I, this is a, a set of verses here that I know I've easily kind of run over and not paid much attention to, so I encourage you to kind of like pay close attention. It's kind of almost like day-to-day details here, but it's connecting with, with the command that Jesus is giving here, the expectation that Jesus is laying out here. There, the Apostle John says this. He says, The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health, and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. 
So notice the contrast that we're seeing here set forth in this passage. You have Gaius. These strangers have come to him, but they're disciples of Jesus. They're followers of the way. They're, they're going out for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. But they've received no help from the pagans. And so, the only help that they can expect is from their brothers and sisters in Christ. From the church. So that they can advance the gospel. And so what's being implied here, I think, when, it's, when we're talking about the sheep welcoming and caring for those who are the disciples of Jesus, it's, it's signaling that they accept the gospel, that they believe the gospel minimally, and then also that they're faithful to the kingdom, that they're loyal to the kingdom. And it makes, it makes sense to see the disciples drawn into what Jesus himself experienced. Remember in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, it talks about how Jesus went to the world and how he was rejected by the world. It says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So we understand foundationally, fundamentally, the way in which we become the children of God is by us welcoming Jesus, by receiving Jesus, rather than rejecting him. And this has been extended to the disciples of Jesus because they are serving as his representatives. It's not a matter of people you know, rejecting Paul as such, or me as such, or any one of you as such, but rejecting us as we are going forth as the representatives of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that's the sort of significant role that we have to play in acting as, as ambassadors. In Luke 10 and 16, he says, Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And then, perhaps one of my, my, my favorite theological moments in all of Scripture is in the book of Acts, where Saul is on the road to Damascus and he's confronted by Jesus Christ. Bright light comes down. He's thrown off his horse. And Saul sees Jesus, and he asks, Who are you, Lord? And then Jesus says this to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now again, like we ask, well, when did I feed and clothe and help Jesus? Because he's not there. You know, he's not, you know, he's been ascended. You do those things as you serve the brothers and sisters of Christ, his disciples. And likewise, on the other hand, in the case of Paul, he was persecuting Jesus by persecuting the disciples. And I have an inkling that this whole experience for Paul was the cornerstone for him understanding the reality of the body of Christ. How we see him writing about that later in 1 Corinthians. From this very experience, he saw that's how intricately connected every believer is to Christ. 
that to persecute one of them is to persecute the body of Christ. And so to serve one of these members is to serve Christ as well. Now, at first glance, eternal life looks like it might depend on being a philanthropist, but the details here show otherwise. Again and again, the critical factor is, did you embrace Jesus? The profound point that Jesus is making here is that embracing or rejecting him isn't limited to those who saw him in the flesh. Christians, especially as they go out with the gospel message, are an extension of himself. If you welcome one of his own, you are welcoming him. If you embrace the gospel messenger, it's being implied that you have also embraced the gospel message. It's our privilege as followers of Jesus to represent him. And as we care for one another, we are showing our care for him. This is what it means to be a sheep. So then what does it mean to be a goat? Verses 41 through 46 tell us. Jesus says that he'll turn to those on his left, those who are the goats, and he calls them cursed. And they're cursed because their destination is the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now when we're talking about eternal fire, eternal can have one of two meanings. It can mean everlasting or of an age to come, ionos. There's a little bit of difficulty in translating there. But the point is, is that what was planned for the angelic rebels, Satan and his cohort, that fate's going to befall anyone who has rejected Christ. They're going to experience a destruction that was not intended for them, but which has become theirs because of this. Now, why are they going to experience this? Jesus says, starting in verse 42, it says, it's because they rejected Jesus. When he was hungry, they did not feed him. When he was thirsty, they did not give him drink. When he was a stranger, they didn't welcome him. They didn't clothe him. They didn't visit him when he was sick and in prison. And like with those who are the sheep, they're a little bit befuddled. And they say, well, when, when, when did we have the opportunity to even do any of this? When did we fail to act in, in caring for you? Jesus says in verse 45, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. So again, the implications here are very, are very practical. When you reject the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, his emissaries, his messengers, you are rejecting Jesus himself. And I think that rejection, again, it can be... It can follow along a spectrum. It can be everything from driving out of town, and there's certainly Christians who have experienced that sort of intense amount of persecution. But it can also entail just apathy. Maybe just like, oh yeah, that's a nice little religious theory you have there, but I don't really care about this whole Jesus thing that much. Not going not gonna to help... Make, supply money so that you can share this message with others. Not going to assist you with my energies and time. Not going to offer you a home 
when that's needed. Now in the West, like we think, like, you know, all of us have our own homes. We can go to hotels and stuff. But especially when you're going back to the ancient times and when you go to other parts of this world, that's a pretty basic need. And so just to say, yeah, that's a nice thing you're talking about, but I'm not welcoming you into my home, you're effectively rejecting them. You're effectively rejecting Jesus. And so the consequence is this. They go into eternal punishment, whereas the sheep enter into eternal life. And this isn't anything new that Jesus is introducing here. In Daniel 12, verse 2, it says, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And we see how in the book of Jude, we're told that Sodom and Gomorrah is actually an anticipation of this, this fallout. It says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave them up, themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And of course, everyone knows, who's studied the Old Testament, who's read the book of Genesis, what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're destroyed. They're no longer there. That's what's going to... That's going to be the, the consequence of the eternal fire. Pure and utter destruction. This is what the Apostle John testifies to in his revelation. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. So this judgment that Jesus is talking about. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So we worry about our first death now. We try to extend our lives as long as they can be extended. But we need to understand that we have an opportunity for eternal life. But we're not guaranteed that we're going to enter into eternal life. Some will enter into eternal life, but others will enter into a second death. That will be final, once for all, period, end, no coming back. There will not be a second resurrection. There will only be one general resurrection of the dead. And so whether you enter into life or whether you're going to enter into this second death, everything turns on your response to Christ. And Jesus has made it clear that it's going to be, there's going to be many that will go to destruction. Matthew 7, 13 through 14, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for why is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction? And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Not everyone's going to be saved. 
relatively speaking, against the total population of humanity, only a few are going to be saved. And the way that they're going to be saved is through Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this isn't an arbitrary standard that we must embrace Jesus. It's not just because. We're called to go to Christ because He is God incarnate. It's in God that we live and move and have our being. So imagine rejecting Him when He has come to us. Imagine rejecting the giver of life when He has come with a rope to draw us out of the sewage pit, the filth of our own making that we wallow in. Seen that way, it's pretty clear why it would be eternally consequential to reject Him. The only thing left for us would be death, to be burned away into oblivion. And that is what awaits us without Him. And now, Jesus is compelling us to see that His presence remains on this earth. That He is in all those Christians carrying this rope of rescue to the world. This announcement that Jesus is King, that He is coming, and that you can join Him because He has made a way by His death and resurrection. So if you're one of those Christians, take heart. Become aware of this great honor that you have to bring Jesus to others. And by the same token, take action to support your brothers and sisters. Because in doing so, you are caring for Jesus himself. And if you're not a Christian, then in the name of Jesus Christ, I say let the Holy Spirit open your eyes to see what God is doing here. See that He is making a new people for Himself. See how He has joined every Christian to Jesus. And, then, and that now Christ speaks to you through us. Our invitation is His invitation. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He loves you so much. So much that He sent His Son for your salvation. Abandon the curse for God's blessing. Believe, embrace Jesus, and be joined to the everlasting family that will inherit the new earth. Let us pray. Dear Father, we confess we confess that we have not always cared for Jesus as we ought to. That Father, 
There have been times when we haven't given the cup, literal or otherwise, to our brothers and sisters in Christ to care for them in their time of need. And we ask that you would forgive us for those failures, Father. We ask that you would help us to be faithful and caring for one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And that you'd put it right in front of our face, Father, right in front of our eyes, that we would see that in doing that, we are in fact literally caring for Jesus. And Father, as you've given us a commission to bring the gospel to the world, this announcement that Jesus is King and that anyone can be saved if they come to Him. As we go forward that message, Father, I pray that You'd also help us to feel the weight of our duty as His ambassadors. That we'd be faithful in representing Him. So that if someone rejects us, it's truly only because they're rejecting Jesus, not because we're a jerk. And Father, I just pray for anyone here who has not embraced Christ yet, that they would hear the words that have been spoken this morning, and that they would hear your love for us in them. That while, Father, you are just and you are going to bring judgment, that it's not your desire that we would be destroyed, but rather that we would be saved and that you have made a way through Jesus and that we can enter into that way simply by faith, simply by believing and throwing ourselves upon Jesus and following his lead. Father, we thank you that we have this mercy and forgiveness in him. I pray that anyone who's yet to receive it, Father, would receive it today. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.